I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On. The six conservative justices on the Supreme Court signaled this week that they're likely to uphold the Mississippi law that mostly bans abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The question now is how far they'll go. The Supreme Court is on the brink of a mess, doctrinal, practical, and political, and it's hard to see how it is going to extricate itself. Overruling Roe would get the court largely out of the abortion-deciding business, but it would create a political firestorm just before the midterm elections. That's our guest, Ruth Marcus, The Post's deputy editorial page editor. Ruth's a Yale-educated and Harvard-trained lawyer. This week, she's out with a really important essay on the radicalization of the Supreme Court. After the court heard the most important case on reproductive rights in a generation, there was no one I wanted to discuss it with more than Ruth. Here's our conversation. Well, Ruth, this week we saw the big, long-awaited Supreme Court oral arguments How nervous are you about the future of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey after listening to what transpired on Wednesday? As nervous as I've ever been, uh, more nervous now, if that's possible, than I was before the oral argument. I thought the advocates did a very good job of arguing against the Mississippi law And I thought the argument went about as badly for them and for women across this country as it could have gone. Obviously, how the court chooses to uphold Mississippi's 15-week ban matters a great deal. What are the options that the justices have and why does it matter? I thought in a case where the advocates on either side could not have disagreed more, it was actually really remarkable that both the Solicitor General of Mississippi arguing to uphold the law and the lawyer for the Center for Constitutional Rights arguing on behalf of the clinic against the law actually both agreed that anything short of overruling Roe or upholding Roe wasn't going to be administrable in the future. There was going to be no way of logically, intellectually, coherently stopping at 15 weeks. But I think that's not going to necessarily stop the court. It hasn't always in the past. Here's what the court can do. It can say, okay, Previously, we have applied what we call this undue burden standard to restrictions on abortions before viability. So that could be things like you have to wait for 24 hours or 48 hours. You have to, if you're a woman seeking an abortion, the same doctor has to give you, um, perform the sonogram as performs the abortion. That doctor has to give you uh, a description of what the procedure is and what the alternatives might be, things like that. It could take that undue burden standard and say, okay, even though we've previously said that there can be no flat-out prohibition on abortion before viability, that is, before 24 weeks, what they could say is, all right, in the past, we have said that all prohibitions on abortion, flat-out prohibitions as opposed to restrictions, are unconstitutional 
until the point of viability. So 15 weeks, it's not that much earlier than 24 weeks. It doesn't sound that bad to us. Most abortions, about 90% of them, take place in the first trimester in any event. So what's the big deal? The problem with that argument is there are some women who are not able to obtain abortions before the end of the first trimester. There are some women who develop health problems or whose fetus is diagnosed with abnormalities into the second trimester. For those women, telling them they can have an abortion at 15 weeks is an undue burden, and as well as for women who haven't been able to scrape together the money and time and everything else in order to obtain the abortion. So you could imagine, and listening to the chief justice, you could imagine him saying, okay, we're not saying anything more. We're going to just tell you that 15 weeks is fine, and we're going to leave everything else to the future but it is not a line that can coherently hold. Because then you pass an eight-week bill. What's the difference? Right. Where does it stop? Right. Where, I don't know where it stops. I want to transition now to this big essay that you wrote, which was incredibly timely, obviously written around this decision, but really in, in a lot of ways previewed what we saw during the oral arguments. And you note, in the essay that despite dire predictions to the contrary, the court reaffirmed abortion rights in Casey and other cases, but they scaled back affirmative action without eliminating it. They scaled back Miranda rights without eliminating them. Times have changed, though, and you write that it's because Republican presidents have gotten better at picking reliably conservative justices. And the theme of the piece is that we're facing this newly radicalized Supreme Court that's really the beginning of this new era. And you call it the rule of six. What is the rule of six, and what does that mean for our country's jurisprudence? Well, uh, the rule of six is a little bit of a, a takeoff on something that Justice Brennan used to tell his law clerks. When they came into his chambers at the start of their clerkships, he used to say, all right, what's the most important thing to understand about this place? And they would come up with different answers, and they would look stumped. And then Justice Brennan, who was this elfin little man, would twinkle and hold up five fingers and say, five. With five votes, you can get anything done around here. And that was his rule of five. And it's actually a very important thing to understand because he was very good at cobbling together majorities for his point of view. The rule of six is both about how much more powerful a six-justice majority, conservative majority is, than a five-justice majority. And it also is a, obviously a play on the word rule because it's not just Justice Brennan's rule, but these guys are ruling the court. I think it's very important to understand that while we have actually had more Republican-nominated justices on the court before, we've had as many as eight to one, we have never in our lifetimes or in decades past, had a court that is this solidly conservative or a court that is this solidly tilted to any one side. And that is because Republican presidents, having been burned by justices nominated in the past, like Justice Souter, Justice O'Connor to some extent, Justice Kennedy to some extent, became determined that they weren't going to squander another opening and that they were going to get reliable conservatives. And so it would seem they have. And part of that is now they want them to have a paper trail to have a proven track record as conservative instead of not having a track record. Right. A paper trail used to be a bad thing. <laughs> um, now it's to some extent a good thing. It is important to understand that 
as much as people like me are so worried and so depressed about the future of the court, there is an interesting anxiety on the other side, which is conservatives are really worried that the chief has gone way squishy from their point of view. They've kind of given up on him. They worry about Justice Kavanaugh sometimes. They worry about Justice Barrett, who has shown a lot more spunk, if I could use a little bit of a gendered word, than an independence than might have been anticipated. And so there's a lot of anxiety on the conservative side about whether this is really their moment as they expect it to be. I think some of those conservatives were probably reassured <laughs> by watching uh, what transpired Wednesday, watching the comments from both Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh. I think they were, and I think they should be. You offer a smart frame for thinking about the court. It's not three conservatives versus three moderates. They're all conservatives. How much pressure are these conservative justices under not to be incremental, not to come up with some kind of stopgap solution, but to get rid of Roe altogether, not to keep it alive and keep eviscerating it? Well, I think they're under a, a bunch of different cross pressures, right? They are part of an institution. There is anxiety, even among these conservative justices, about how the court is perceived. And that's a justifiable anxiety. Justices can read political opinion polls as well as anybody else. So there is that. But there is also the reality that Justices live in their, the real world, that is their own real world. Um, and so I'm sure there is peer pressure that comes to bear that the conservative justices feel in some way from their team. It's not that anybody says it, and it's not that they even consciously are aware of it. But when you're going to disappoint your team and when you're going to get booed by your teammates if you don't do what they want you to do, that does weigh on you. This is why I've thought it was, and I've written, that it's such a terrible mistake for progressives to demonize Justice Kavanaugh and to go to his house to protest, because the more you do that, Justice Kavanaugh is somebody who really enjoyed being welcomed into the bosom of the legal establishment to teach at Yale Law School, to teach at Harvard Law School, to go give speeches there. If you're just going to drive him into the arms of the most conservative elements of the legal profession, if you're going to drive him into the arms of the Federalist Society, where he could turn up at their annual meeting to thunderous applause and standing ovations, you're just doing yourself a disservice. You wrote the definitive book on Kavanaugh. It's called Supreme Ambition, and it makes a great Christmas gift for anyone <laughs> listening. Uh, he really did seem to signal during Wednesday's oral arguments that he is fine with overturning precedents. And he suggested that he believes Roe is one of the wrongly decided cases. What do you make of his behavior in this abortion case? I was really quite surprised about the degree to which I thought Justice Kavanaugh tipped his hand. He wanted to make very clear, um, number one, to get out there that if the Supreme Court does away with Roe, there is uh, nothing that stops any state from continuing to let uh, as many abortions be performed as people want. Uh, number two, that in his view, this wouldn't be a th thumb on the scale one way or another. It would simply be making the court neutral and showing that it's neither pro-life nor pro-choice. I, I think this is fatuous. 
We're still awaiting a decision from the court on this Texas abortion law. Talk about the Texas case and sort of Kavanaugh there versus Kavanaugh on Roe. The Texas case comes from this very clever slash diabolical law that Texas passed that prohibits abortion after six weeks, but many states have tried to do that, including Mississippi. The thing that's novel about Texas is it outsources enforcement of that law to private parties. I call them private vigilantes who would get bounties of $10,000 or more if they found people who were helping women obtain abortions. This has had the effect of shutting down all abortion after six weeks in Texas. And the question is whether either the clinics or the United States helping enforce constitutional rights can go to federal court to obtain what in the normal course of things, would be an obvious order declaring that this law under existing precedent is unconstitutional. There's these complicated legal reasons that because there is no Texas state actor that it's easy to identify to sue to stop enforcement of the law because they're not enforcing the law, how this can proceed. I am astonished that the court, having speeded up and ordered very expedited briefing and argument in this case, has not yet decided it. I think what that means is there's a very lengthy and very angry dissent coming from some of the most conservative justices. But I think it's important to understand that while my prediction is that Texas will lose this case, the court will permit Texas to be sued in federal court in order to determine whether its law is constitutional. This is not an example of the court being reasonable and moderate and welcoming of um, civil rights plaintiffs or others asserting um, infringements on their constitutional rights. This is an example of the court protecting itself. And what was very clear from the oral argument is that Justice Kavanaugh and others were very worried about this tactic, which was used to frustrate the constitutional right to abortion, that it could be used in other cases, in other situations, in other liberal states who wanted to restrict people's gun rights, who wanted to restrict people's religious freedom. And judges and courts don't like being told they have no business deciding cases. And a decision against Texas will be more of a decision for the court and for that principle, which is you're not the boss of us, Texas, than it is for constitutional rights. Because let's be clear, it has been since September 1st that women in Texas who under current law have a supposed right to obtain abortions have not been able to obtain it for now September, October, and November, three full months. We'll be right back after a short break. I want to talk about John Roberts. It's still the Roberts court in name. You write in your essay that Roberts holds the reins but is not firmly in control of the horses. I liked that line. He's no longer the pivotal player. He's been outvoted. What did you make of Roberts and what is he doing here and— how is he trying to to play all of this? Justice Roberts is in a very delicate position on the court in general, and he's in, in a very delicate position on the court here. Here's the question. He will vote, I think it's absolutely certain, to uphold the Mississippi law. But 
if there are five justices who would vote to uphold the Mississippi law and to overrule Roe, one of them, I think, would have the power to assign the majority opinion or perhaps write it himself if the holding in the case is Roe is overruled and Justice Roberts, Chief Justice, doesn't want to go along with that. If he can peel off one or two other justices, Kavanaugh, maybe, or Barrett, maybe, to keep with him, he could write a narrower, hold the fort, put off the reckoning for another day decision on Roe while upholding the Mississippi law. How much do you think that institutional concern that Roberts clearly has, and he was pro-life before he came to the court. This is not someone who, you know, his wife led a, a pro-life group. This is someone, you know, who who is not squishy in his personal views on abortion, but clearly cares deeply about the institution. How much does that concern, do you think, apply to the other five conservatives? Uh, less. <laughs> a, a lot less. And um, as we go from Roberts to Kavanaugh to Barrett to the others in absolute descending order, for example, Justice Thomas has been very clear. He thinks, especially in a case that involves a constitutional interpretation, if you believe as a justice that a previous court got it wrong, it's your job to say so. But I thought that the conversation such as it was between Justice Breyer, who was more simply trying to get his argument, I think, out to the public, which he knew was listening, and out to the other justices who he knew were his captive audience, than to elicit any information that could help him make a decision in this case. I thought that this argument about how dangerous it is for the court to appear to change its understanding of the Constitution simply because of a change in membership and simply because it has the power to do so. And there was a point at which Justice Roberts said, I was very struck by the points that Justice Breyer made. But then he said, but I'm not really sure they apply in the Casey case. <laughs> um, so it's going to only go so far. And the stare decisis, which is the rule that the court applies to itself to let its previous decision stand, absent a really, really powerful, compelling reason to overrule it, it's really in the eye of the beholder. Justice Kavanaugh has a good point. There are many cases that I am personally thrilled that the court overruled. So the cases that should be overruled are, in some sense, the cases that I disagree with also. We're all a little bit guilty of that. We really haven't talked about Justice Gorsuch. I, I was thinking as, as I was watching this sort of disaster for the women's movement play out and the two hours of oral arguments that if, if this court really does overturn Roe, it's going to be even harder for any Republican to stop Donald Trump from winning the Republican nomination again in 2024. If he can go and campaign to social conservatives and Republicans and say, I was the president who gave you three justices who overturned Roe and, you know, the as others didn't get promised. it done. As <laughs> I promised, as I said should happen. Obviously, two of those three really should not be on the court. You know, if Merrick Garland had been confirmed after Antonin Scalia died in 2016, we wouldn't have gotten Neil Gorsuch. And if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had either retired when Barack Obama was president or lived three months longer, uh, Amy Coney Barrett wouldn't be on the court. So th and it is or ultimately— if just, Or if Senator McConnell hadn't raced her through. Right, right, Well, in, in record time. And and so, it, you know, it, it, it really is just such a huge part of the Trump legacy uh, is, is this impact on the court. But I, I, talking about Neil Gorsuch, 
he is someone that we're not really wondering about. Uh, it, it is sort of remarkable looking back, and I think this is a, a critique of the left and a lot of people who didn't really mobilize to fight his nomination in 2017 because they focused on Trump and everything else that was going on. But it, it doesn't feel like Gorsuch is really in doubt here when it comes to Roe. Does it, is he someone who could be a surprise? He's not as explicitly on record as are Alito and Thomas, but I don't, and he has shown a capacity to surprise us in the past, most interestingly with the decision that really infuriated a lot of conservatives finding that federal job discrimination law includes protections for gay and transgender workers. Um, That's obviously a statutory interpretation question. I think Justice Gorsuch likes to keep us guessing and surprise (laughs) us on some things. But I will be very surprised if he does not end up siding as he has throughout his tenure with Thomas and Alito. If Roe goes, how worried should we be that they're going to come after New York Times v. Sullivan or Gideon versus Wainwright or or other sort of what I would consider bedrock uh, watershed cases? Well, on one level, Roe has been so much the focus of attention and anger and disdain from conservatives that you might say it's unique. But on the other hand, it's a case that has been affirmed and reaffirmed and that has um, stood there for 50 years. So if they're willing to over—you could argue it completely the other way, which is that if they're willing to overrule Roe, they're willing to do a lot of other crazy stuff, like, for example, Times v. Sullivan. Which is what basically allows us to do our jobs. (laughs) Kind kind of allows us to do our jobs and to say mean things about people when it's warranted. We're not imagining this possibility. If we went back to a situation which is much more like um, the situation in the United Kingdom, where if you said, if you wrote something um, about a public official or a public figure that was defamatory and that was wrong, you could be held liable for that, even if you didn't act with knowing or reckless disregard for the truth. We would have a very—it's not that you and I would have a very hard time doing our jobs, but our friends in the newsroom would have a particularly hard time doing their jobs. And that should be a scary thought for everybody. Watching Wednesday's oral arguments gave you the sense that we may be seeing the end of of another era in American life. This has been this dominant culture war fight. What do you think this moment means and represents, and and what is the era that's ending? The— era that could be ending would be the era when the focus of fights over abortion is a court fight. But I don't think in this country, unlike in many other countries, that we're going to ever stop arguing about abortion rights. It's just baked into the cake of our politics right now. And some people could reasonably say, well, that's because the court took it out of the political branches and prevented us from reaching some closure on this. I don't think so. I just think it's part of who we are and our system. And I think that part is going to persist long after the Supreme Court decides Dobbs versus Jackson women's health. Well, thank you, Ruth. I really appreciate it. It's been really fun. If Roe versus Wade is overturned, 22 states could likely ban or severely restrict abortion access. 
Of those nine states have abortion bans still on their books from before Roe that would automatically become enforceable again. And a dozen states have already passed what are called trigger laws that would take effect and ban abortion if Roe gets struck down. On the other side, 14 states and the District of Columbia have policies that explicitly protect a right to an abortion. The Supreme Court seems unlikely to hand down its decision in the Mississippi case until its term ends in June, but the justices could always rule sooner. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, with editing from Allison Michaels, Michael Duffy, and Renita Jablonski. This episode was mixed by Veronica Simonetti. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. The show notes include a link to Ruth's essay, which you can listen to her read in her own voice. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review. It helps new listeners find us. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next Friday because there's always more to say.